0: One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one as ring as to rule them all, lion, one ring the to lion, find them. The
1: great one ring
2: lion,
3: to rule them all, ring The wheel of time t- turns and ages come and pass. The, the in. wheel of time turns
2: effect. and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come
0: and pass. Welcome to the Books from Earth podcast. Now you will relive your favorite science fiction, fantasy, and apocalyptic literature. If you haven't read the book covered by this episode, do know that there will be lots of spoilers. Enjoy this story again with us, the Books from Earth Podcast. Time to relive a favorite book. Welcome to the Books from Earth Podcast, Episode 9, featuring the first novel and Patrick Rothfuss's Kingkiller Chronicle. This story feels epic at the start, pushes you along on an intense hero's journey. Part Wheel of Time part Harry Potter, and part Count of Monte Cristo, we have a fantasy world, we have adolescents learning magic from an intense first-person narrator, a rivalry, a budding love story, or tragedy. I don't know yet. Today, we relive The Name of the Wind with Episode 9 of Books from Earth. I'm Josh, and I'm joined by my fellow Books from Earth podcasters, Lou. Hey, guys. Maureen. Hi, everybody. And Jack.
1: Josh, you get SMS text on your phone?
0: Hmm. It's after 2018. (laughs) I got those in 2018, but you know, first or second now, let's go back and revisit what this book is about.
3: Thanks, Josh. So The Name of the Wind is the first book in the Kingkiller Chronicles series. It starts off with Coat at the Waystone Inn, and you can tell that there's a little bit of tragedy in his past and something going on, and he's visited by a man who's been tracking him down because he realizes that Coat is actually the legendary hero-slash-villain-slash-romancer-slash-bard Kvote and Cote agrees to tell Chronicler his story, but it will take three days. Then it flashes between the two situations, the present and the past, and it's the first book is what happens to Kvothe when he is growing up. You know, he starts out as a very happy child and a very happy family in a, in a troop of of travelling performers learning everything about drama and performance and they pick up a old alchemist Abenathy, who teaches starts to teach quoth about magic one day shortly after ben leaves the troop these villains from Old fairy tales come and kill his entire troop and he's left all alone and he has to go to the city and and learn to survive on his own as an orphan, as a a homeless orphan. And he survives on the streets of Tarbine and finds people that are helpful and finds people that are hurtful. And all the time, the idea is sitting in the back of his head that he really wants to go and become an arcanist and not just learn, you know, the basic level of magic that's in this world, but also kind of the high magic, the naming of things. And so he sets off on his journey to go to the university and he gets admitted into the university. He meets a girl along the way, but at the university, he actually, he makes a few friends, but doesn't really know how to be a friend himself. So he has to learn that because he's never had friends growing up and he, you know, finds his favorite teachers and finds his uh rival teachers, his nemesis teachers. He learns basic magic and advanced magic and very quickly moves up in the ranks. He gets expelled from the one place that he wanted to go to, the archives, so that he could do research on the the Chandrian, the people that killed his family. He also finds another home in the local music hall, and he... Showcases his uh talents as a musician and he runs into you know his love interest again, but while he's there in this in this second home that he has, which is another part of his identity, you know he meets another group of people that he can relate to on a different level, and all the while he's you know destitute and trying to remain to have enough money in school, so he has to go meet the gallet who will loan him money that he has to repay and all of the the trials that you go through when you're when you're young and especially when you're young without money and he it's just the story of the the first book is the story of him as he finds his way through the university and finds his way through his budding musicianship and then all of a sudden the news comes that that the Chandrian have been spotted, you know, not spotted, but rumors of of actions that are like them. So he runs off at you know great personal expense at, to the city where he's heard that the Chandrian are, and there he finds Dena, his love interest again, and she's the only survivor of the whole thing. And together they kill a dragon. Then he has to get back and finds his way up onto the rooftops because he's befriended a young woman who who lives underground, who looks like she's had some really bad trauma and, and can't handle people in any way, shape or form. And he has befriended her and feeds her and clothes her. And through her, he finds his way into the archives that he was banned from in the beginning. And in the meantime, you know, going back and forth between his story of growing up and then where he's at now, we find out that, you know, the character of Coat, you know, has lost his magic and has befriended a Fae. And the Fae is very dangerous, uh, but very, very loyal. He has taken on this alter ego As an innkeeper and that is how he sees himself now and he wants to do magic and he wants to protect people and he wants to be a hero but he's kind of stuck and he's stuck in this in this thing and and you know clearly he's had some some great tragedies either happen to him or because of him we don't know yet probably. My guess would be that he created some some large damage and is suffering some very intense personal consequences from that. But that's just my theory. But, you know, we get to see Coat as he is today after, you know, his name has been made for himself and his great deeds have been done and how much that has broken him as a human being. And it's a beautifully written, beautifully crafted story. And I just, I wrote down like a whole bunch of adjectives about it. It's a story of revenge. It's a story of young love. It's a story of obsession. It's a story of music. It's a story of family. It's a story of loss and grief and all the things that happen to you, you know, as you journey through life.
0: Thanks, Maureen. Great job. That was a great introduction to this book. And we have this character who is the first person narrator of the story and we're definitely going to get to know him. What made the world or this book come alive for you all? So, in terms
1: of world building, it's pretty interesting. We've done some other books that devote more of its attention and energy to world building, and we've got some coming that spend more time on on world building. Um so for me, it's not the world building, it's the narrator. And there's a mystery with him, uh, we don't know where the future holds. Uh, you know, this to me was a—it's a long book. I don't know how long, but say a 700-page introduction to this guy's to this first chapter of this guy's life, first several chapters. Clearly, there's more chapters that happen before he becomes the innkeeper. And my guess is this book is a trilogy. The third book will advance from the point where he is from the present tense where he's acting as the narrator. But to me, it was a book about narration. And it was a book about is his story true? is what parts are true? Is it his just his point of view? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he where does the fae come in? Where, you know, what has made him famous? And we still don't know any of this stuff. So to me, it's more of dangling loose ends that the author has left you know deliberately and intentionally and artfully. For the reader. And that's the drive for me in this story. It isn't the world building. It's who is this dude? I've read 700 pages and I still don't know.
3: I love that. For me, what made this book come alive was... The, i just keep thinking back to to time in tarbian where he was living on the streets and what he had to go through and like the details of you know hiding on the roof and having to run from the guys that would would try to rob him and at the same time you know finding those people that would help him and especially that that one moment where he went to go beg in the upper class part of the city and um you know, the woman there was so kind to him and took pity on him, but he was immediately beaten up. You know, they beat up, a, a the the guards beat up a 12, 13-year-old kid, and he had to crawl back through the snow into the lower section of town. And it was those moments like that that were, you, you get a sense of, you, you don't just get a sense of the geography, like you get a sense of the smells and the... The chill in the air and the, the hardness of the, the cobblestones underneath the snow. This book comes alive to me in just about every passage. And one of the things I noticed as we were discussing what we were going to talk about on the podcast is the difference between this and other books that we've read. We, we refer to sections of this book as passages and we refer to sections of other books as scenes because these are just so deep and rich and transformative when I read them the whole book from the like I I feel like Pat Rothfuss has lived on the streets I feel like Pat Rothfuss has been an excellent musician I feel like Pat Rothfuss has outsmarted all of his teachers because everything that he writes is so familiar and so relatable and
1: have you seen have you seen his picture
3: Yes, I've met him, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> I went, we went to a book signing when he was in the area when Name of the Wind came out. Or okay. it was Wise Man's Fear. We, we went to a couple book signings of his. And I, I do go to conventions where he talks at. And he is delightful. So, yeah.
1: It, it looks like a lot of fun. I saw a picture of him wearing, like, a wizard hat.
3: And yes. was, like
1: <laughs> This dude writes a serious tome, but he likes yeah. to
0: have fun on the side. Lou, what made this... Book or world come alive for you.
2: You know, I I kind of agree with Jack. This guy, quote, and I had a hard time saying his name actually (laughs) when I was reading the book. You know, the spelling just really threw me off. But anyway, his story, you know, getting to know this guy as a child, his journey into whatever he becomes, you know, is really interesting to me. It's like, you know, here's this guy who's had a lot of tragedy, right? And he's coming of age in his own right, you know, and something really tragic happens to him. I mean, very tragic. But we're introduced to him in an inn, you know, basically like a bar slash restaurant, you know. And like there's so many questions about this guy who seems very interesting, you know. The more you get kind of get to know him, the more you want to get to know at least that was my experience. Like, I really wanted to get to know who who this guy is. Why? How's he become so famous? So we don't know I, that. We don't know at all why. No, famous. we have no yeah. idea. In this book, you know, we have no idea. And uh, I just actually started reading it, the second book, and I still don't know. <laughs> yet. I just <laughs> started.
0: Yeah, he's he's a mystery, for sure. And we're gonna dig we're gonna dig into his character quite a bit today on this episode. One of the things that made the book come alive for me were the high point scenes. I just I started really enjoying them. So these are the scenes where Kvoth Kvoth quote. I don't know. I don't know how to say it. I don't know how to say it. Rhymes rhymes with
3: rhymes quoth. Rhymes with quoth. Kvoth. Yeah.
0: Kvoth. Kvoth. Um kvoth. Kvoth. There's so many scenes where Kvoth does something that's just a high point scene. So any scene with Denna, any scene with him playing the lute. Oh yeah. The leer, the lear. Sorry, the lear.
3: No, the he loot. does he does the loot. I think Yeah, does uh,
0: does
3: yeah Denna does the lyre.
0: Got it, got it. thank you. Sorry, mm-hmm. I blew that one. Erase it, erase it from the pod. let's go back. No, uh, no, no. No, no, no. Uh, it was good. It was a good, man. Good attempt. But he breaks I up like that it. trumpet. It's so good. I love the trumpet seeds. Oh. <laughs> the trumpet <laughs> There's no trumpet. Wait, a, no. There's no trumpet.
3: Okay, cool.
0: Yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, okay. any, any scene in front of the professors, whether it's the oh, tuition yeah. scenes or the uh, trials, all those, anytime one of those scenes happens, they're just like super interesting to me. Were there any details about this world? I have to say that I've read other worlds and the authors go to great length to describe how buildings look, how clothing looks, how the landscape looked. And here I'm, I'm not taken much away on how things look. Again, to your all's point, it's because I'm so involved with the intensity of this narrator, I'm really just kind of following his stream of consciousness, and he's, he's not pointing out to us how interesting every cobblestone is, how interesting every doorway is, how interesting every clothing that somebody wears is. That's just not where he's – that's not how he sees the world. Does anybody have a favorite passage? Oh, Lou, you were going to say something? We do know Poth doesn't have a
2: lot of clothes.
3: Yeah, uh, I does, especially like dr- that detail.
2: He, does, he doesn't dress well. You know, because he's, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have any re- rich parents or anything like that.
3: Yeah. And I remember I, when I first started teaching, you know, I had five sets of clothes, one for every day of the week. But I was talking to one of my old co-workers and he he had two pairs of pants. He had a brown pair of pants and he had a beige pair of pants and he would alternate them every other day. You know, because that's sometimes that's just how you start out.
1: So, Josh, the way I read it, this book is broken down into to- from my point of view, into sections. First section of his life is innocence. He is happy, safe, protected. He's with his family, with his first teacher, and with his extended family, which is the troop. Then the Chandrian come and kill everybody except him. He's got survivor's guilt. He's got He's lost. He spends time in the woods for a short period of time, which is a transition period to the next phase of his life, which is, in my mind, I read it as practicality. He had to be practical. He's an orphan in like a fantasy version of like a Darwinian city, right, with soot and smut and dirt and ice and whippings and begging. And, and, but he has to be super practical to survive that period. Then he goes into education, and that is, the education is, of course, external but Maury, it's internal. He's learning about himself, about who he is as a person. Meanwhile, he's got this other teacher, which is Denna, his love interest, who's helping him to learn about himself. And that's what, that's what we know about him, those three sections. For some reason, in the modern times, when he's narrating the story, the way I read it is he is attracting evil magic, whether it's those spider things or that zombie guy. And I think and I'm, I'm going to be starting the second book very soon. We're going to learn there'll be a military slash warrior phase, and there might be a phase about heartbreak and in helping to form who he is. Um, meanwhile, the story is going on, and it got me thinking about fa- like phases in my life and teachers in my life. But that's kind of how I read the book is in phases of the narrator's life.
0: Yeah, indeed, he there are three distinct three distinct phases. Uh, characterized by different geographies even did anyone find certain phases more entertaining than others
3: i so the the ones that really got to me were the ones that were the deep loss and the deep victories it wasn't necessarily the phases but the moments of transition where you know right after his family dies he goes into the woods and he you know sits for months and just plays music and then the, the victories that he has, where he starts to learn, like you were saying, Jack, about like the where he reaches like the pinnacles of his education, where he goes in front of all of the teachers and is like, OK, I know I'm up for expulsion, but I think you should make me a relar you know, or he's at the Eloian and he is playing to get his talent pipes and he has that moment where his, his string breaks and all of a sudden he is – he he makes it and he overcomes. You know, those moments so a series, where – So a series of tests. Yes, it's... yes.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And I guess the dragon would be another test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely.
3: Yeah. The ones that really drew me – because the dragon – the like, the dragon, there was – it was scary, but there was – it was either – Live or die, you know, the going through the woods, it was those moments where, you know, he he has to find something new in himself to be able to get through that situation. And the same thing with every time he goes on the horns with the teacher and every time he goes to the Eloian to prove himself, you know, he has to overcome all of the self-doubt. And, you know, he knows that he's good, but is he good enough? Like, I love those moments.
0: Yeah, I liked how money plays a role, constantly putting pressure on him, putting that friction in his life where he has to go against himself, more he has to push harder, he has to show up for things in a way he wants to, and yet sometimes he makes... It seems like he makes bad decisions with money as well. Yeah, there's a couple of times where I'm cringing. I'm like, no, don't, don't spend your money like that. You've got to be all nice <laughs> like person. What? You know, what what are you doing? Time? You're digging your, you're digging your hole even deeper. Well, he, he buys the horses and runs off to chase after the Chandrian, you know, incident towards the end. And then of yeah. course, you know, that ends up working out for him just fine. I
1: think, I think the money pressure and the social, socio class-type stuff is very interesting and modern. In the sense of it's the, you know, in the Titanic, the movie, it's all these like wealthy people. And then like this one plucky street kid, you know, and he's the hero. And it has that same, um, same vibe where it's that plucky street kid with the street smarts. Mm-hmm. And that's very, to me, American and modern take. And But it's, he's take, it's very serious in this book, too.
0: Who is he? Do we know if he's a good guy or a bad guy?
3: See, and this is what I particularly like because there are times, you know, I, I'm also a huge Harry Potter fan, and there are times especially with like when he's up in front of his his university professors where I don't feel like I'm looking at Harry Potter. I feel like I'm looking at Lord Voldemort. Like, he's so charming and he's so smart and clever that he really just manipulates people to get whatever he wants.
1: How about the emperor? Could he be the emperor? I hope he's not the emperor.
0: Emperor Palpatine? Well, I mean, kind of the same description. He (laughs) fools everybody. He's tricky. He's smarter. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But see, he had to learn that when he was a homeless kid. That's just the practicality. He had to he had that practicality skill and he now he has that for the rest of his life. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't necessarily think like I, I I'm wondering if we are reading the story of an empathetic villain rather than the tragic hero. You know?
0: Ooh.
1: Mm. So can I can I dovetail that into one of my quotes that I would like to read?
3: Absolutely.
1: Okay. Because to me, narrator is, was what this is about in narration. And is it a reliable narrator, or unreliable? And this quote is not spoken by Kavoth. It is spoken by Bash to the, um, to the Chronicler. It's like everybody tells a story about themselves inside their own head. Always. All the time. That story makes you what you are. We, be, we build ourselves out of that story. A different, now a new quote, fresh quote, different part of the book. The best lies about me are the ones I told. Another quote. Mm. We all become what we pretend to be. And I think the line before that is, we all know, something along the lines of, we all know what it's like to wear a mask. We all become what we pretend to be. Th- that's some deep shit right there anyway. And it's part of the reason why I love, I love sci-fi, and I love gr- growing to love fantasy, but definitely love sci-fi is because you can deal with big ideas and pull them apart and tease them out and look at them from a bunch of different angles. But that's some deep stuff, and we don't know about this guy. Is, he, is his story that he's telling a story he's been telling about himself in his own head always, all the time? And that's becomes what we are. And he built the story out of, he built himself out of that story. Or is it what really happened? So I don't know if he's a bad guy or if he's just been talking to to himself so much that he's that we don't even know anymore. Right? It's so much self-reflection and navel gazing that he's lost touch.
3: Well, and you bring up, like you bring up an interesting point worth that Jack is that like if we look take a look at Bast, like we find Bast to be a sympathetic character, you know, his fey friend. But if you look at how Bast threatens Chronicler at the end of the book, it is very intense and um savage. And like if you had met if, if Chronicler had been the sympathetic character we would have an entirely different view of of Bast ba- like and the things that he's saying is like give my friend back what he was but it's more like give me back the playful person as opposed to some hero and it's interesting like we don't really you're right we don't really know who Kvoth is and if we judge him by the company that he keeps he doesn't seem like a good guy it's interesting it's interesting including
1: including Denna Yes, Denna's, Denna's not. She's not cool, man. I mean, I'm sure okay. I would fall for her too, but she's a bad influence. Bad influence.
2: <laughs> bad influence but mean.
1: that's being said, just like he had his practical phase, she's living in a practical phase that is in her entire life.
3: Mm-hmm. But again, I think we've been shown that, you know, her name Denna is two letters away from dinner. The drug in the book, and I don't think that's a coincidence.
1: Oh, good call. Yeah, good call. yeah, yeah.
3: Good call. Like her, like it would be meeting a girl named heroin, you know, and not the not the not the hero in the story. Heroin, like, hey, here's a drug, you know.
2: Good call. You know, I think he's a good guy because his interactions, he's the way he interacts with people from. Of course. According to him. Go ahead. Ac- yeah. According to him. But if he, according to him, you're right. But the way he interacts with uh, the villagers, I guess, you know, in the small, you know, he's hiding out and he's supposed to be like this, you know, famous person. You can say, yes, he's escaping something. And the name of the book, the name of the series is the King killer. Right. So I am assuming that he's a King killer. And he's
1: going right. to kill Ambrose, right? I hope he does.
2: I can't stand yeah. him, but um, <laughs> I, I, you know, <laughs> honestly, I honestly think he's a, he he is a good guy, you know, who has a lot of faults, who does, you know, and he does look at himself, you know.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, this, a scene that comes to mind when you're talking, Lou, is the one towards the end of the book where he's in the uh, the town where he killed the dragon. And there's this uh, girl who tells him about what was dug up at the farm, the the vase or whatever it was. Yeah, and and he gives her a charm and and makes a story about it and how the charm is going to protect her. And um, he says, but there in that room was the first time I actually felt like any sort of hero. If you are looking for a reason for the man I would eventually become, if you are looking for a beginning, look there. So I'm with you, Lou. I think he's a good guy. I think he's good. But yeah. it's it's interesting that it's even a question. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. And I like it. And that is a very good – that's a very good quote. But again, like a lot – the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> yeah. my, mom,
1: my mom used to tell, tell me that when I was a kid, and I literally did not know what she meant. I, <laughs> she could have been like – you know, like I know you're only nine, but this is what the Pythagorean theorem is. I would, I just literally was like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, <laughs> like, I don't even know what she means by that.
0: What is his tone? What's what is the tone in the narration? Mm.
1: Serious. How would
0: you how do you describe it? It's serious, isn't it?
1: Serious. Yeah. I think it would be if I'm the chronicler, even if I'm not the chronicler, and I meet this guy at an inn. That's a great, cool. Get snowed in, hear this dude's story, and wow, man. Dude, and then you're like, for years, you're like, dude, I met the, I, I heard a story, fucking crazy. You should hear this shit. But do I want to hang with that guy? I don't think so. I go tough, hang, super serious. You know, as I start to write, he grabs my hand. He's just kind of, <laughs> you know, I was just like, dude, bro, you
0: yeah. know. <laughs> Yeah, they, there isn't yeah. really a focus on of fun in the book.
3: No. It's very just tragic. Everything is tragic. Everything yes. has a dark cloud over it. Everything has an aura of grief and of struggle and of just hardship. He has an aura of hardship about him. I. Like, does he ever have a good day? And I've read the second book, so I won't say anything regarding that. But it's like, this is the person that you're talking to. And it's like, has this person ever had a good day in their entire life?
2: This guy saw his, he didn't see his parents get murdered, but he saw the the people who killed his parents. Yeah, yeah, I mean, major PTSD. He is, yeah, he is driven by resentment, mm-hmm. you know, driven by. Oh, definitely. And, deep hatred towards the Chandrian or you know right. Or, you know, this mysterious group of people. His dad, who
1: was dad summoned by yes. the by the authenticity of his song.
3: Yeah, exactly. Right. The the other interesting thing is the Chandrian because what we don't actually know about the Chandrian is what are their goals. Are they actually bad guys? Or are they protecting the world from something you know is it important that they remain a secret because like the e- evil forces would be out to get them because like it looks like if we're from the beginning of the book it looks like the world of the worlds between the 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 veil between the fey world and the real world has been torn apart and where the chandrian protecting that and kvothe in his obsession for revenge did he Kill the Chandrian and rip apart the veil between the two worlds and cause this breach. But, Jack, I also like what you thought, that he maybe is attracting evil magic. I love that. That's another great idea.
1: Yeah, he's a magnet for it. You know what else he is? And I'm, just, I'm toying with this idea a little bit. But, like, we're all very impressionable. We're all – there's a nature versus nurture thing here. Like, what is his nature? Like, I, I know that if, or at least I believe this about myself, if I were to have grown up in a different era or a different place, I would be a very different person, right? I, I just know that I believe that about myself. If I was born in a cult in Idaho, I would probably be a really good cult member, right? If I was <laughs> born in a military family, I'd probably be like all in on on that. Right. I just think that. But I also feel about myself and about the people I've known for years. Inside them is like a true north. There's a thread of authenticity, there's a thread of who they really are, that it doesn't matter their outsides, there's there's something that's innate in them. What is innate in Kavoth? Like music for sure. But what else? When he's a child, he's totally impressionable. When he has that period in the, in the woods, he's totally impressionable. He becomes a part of the city, or you know, the, the grime. Then he becomes – so. but who's he really? Right. He's, he is more like a, a reflection of his surroundings than anything else. And that could be part of the PS, PTSD, and I don't know if it's deliberate by the author, and I don't know if I'm really onto something. But I do have like a nature versus nurture and him being totally, totally
0: subject to impressions. And his life has gone chameleon. through. He's yeah. a wanderer too. He's always on the move. No roots. No, mm-hmm. no roots. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, in Tar- Tar- Tarbine, he has, he had to constantly move around to hustle and be practical. He had his little niche in, on the rooftop, but that was it. And then in uh, at the university, he's just always moving around, living in mm-hmm. different places. Across well, the even summer. growing
3: up, like even growing up, he was traveling town to town. You know, he's yeah. one of the traveling people. Yeah. The
2: rule. He's he's a rude, you know. I think he's a rude to his core still. And there are travelers. They're travelers.
1: And that's why being an innkeeper is bad for him, maybe. Oh, good question.
3: Yeah, interesting. Yeah. That'd be terrible. It's,
0: it's the opposite. What do we think of the Chandrian as? At least what the who, the narrator characterizes them as the ultimate a- enemy. Do we have a clue of what they're about? Are they human? No are they clue. Magical. Mm-mm. Very I, I violent. Don't know.
1: They're very uh, violent. Yeah, I don't know. But they can't stay in place very long because something from the sky that it seems like maybe it's good is going to get them. So they've got to move on kind of quickly.
3: Tell me, tell me about that, Jack, because I am having trouble recollecting what you are remembering. And I've read there, this book a couple times.
1: <laughs> so I think it happens where in the original – in their origin story, mm-hmm. and then there's a mention of it. And then after they're around the campfire and he stumbles across them and the like the wheels of his carriage are like not only are they broken, but they're damaged and rusted that they break under the weight of his hand or foot. I can't remember which. And they look up and they're going to kill him and stuff. But then they realize they're out of time. They're coming. And so they have to leave.
3: That's right. I forgot about that. By the way, Jack, did all of the wood in your house just rot, and all of the metal rust, and did all of the, the flames turn blue in your house? Haha, ha, I'm funny. In my house. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about the Chandrian. Ha, it was good.
0: See? Yeah. It, Jack, you may not have been paying attention. Maybe no serious. i got it i got it no
3: <laughs> it just
1: wasn't like, funny That's fine. i'm like <laughs> i'm like both on that one. i was just trying to grab her quill back from
0: her and be yeah. <laughs> like what do we think about ambrose as a rival
1: the he's a good ha- rival i hope they flesh him out more and i hope that he has uh, i hope he climbs to the top of his his totem pole so that he's a worthy adversary
3: well, and I think that's just it—is that he's—he's he's not a worthy adversary for Kvothe because he does not match all of the parts that are Kvoth. You know, he doesn't—he's—he's he's not anywhere close to him in music. He's not anywhere close to him in intelligence. He's not anywhere close to him. He—he's not a match for Kvothe at all. He's just there being a pain in the ass. Like,
1: so I only have. I'm going to let you keep going, Maureen, but I only have one part um, when we get to casting Mm -hmm. that I have, and it's him.
3: Okay. I'm excited. Yeah,
1: Yeah, continue.
3: Yeah. He's more of a nuisance. He's not a nemesis. He's not anything that is worth close time or energy, at least in this book. But, like, you know – a- any t- Anything that he has to do to Ambrose, he can always outsmart him and always um, get the one up on him, you know, because he's just – Ambrose does not have what it takes to go head-to-head with both
1: Correct. Correct. That's why I want him to climb the totem pole and be a worthy
0: adversary. He has money. He has money. And That's going to be a new sense. He's,
2: he's highly, better. highly connected. His father is like a duke or something, isn't he?
3: Mm-hmm. 12th yep. in line for the throne or something like that
2: yeah yeah he's mm-hmm.
0: highly connected what names does he know but doesn't know that he knows i don't even understand that question
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: i'm gonna um, send it to you in an sms text
3: okay <laughs>
0: you should get it in about 20 minutes
3: so so it was actually it was my thought and it was because i was reading this book for the second time because you know both learns the name of the wind and when he He learns and speaks the name of the wind um, for the first time. He has a really uh, very bad physical reaction to it. And like Elodin has to kind of coach him through it. But the other thing is he talks about like a feeling and a knowledge and and an ability to craft. And he has also, in my mind, exhibited that when he is playing lute, and when he is um, crafting music like the Jackass, Jackass song, you know, so I don't think I think Cavoth actually also knows at least the name of music as well as the name of the wind. He may not know it yet, but I think that he does.
0: I think he knows the name of Dinah. I think I think he has her he knows, number. Mm-hmm. I know that's different than sort of maybe knowing it, but but people one of um, Master Elod- Elowen. He thinks that names too have power, and I think Kavoth and Dena—I think he knows—I think he knows her name,
3: mm-hmm.
0: but not in the same way necessarily, maybe as as music. Well, I'm gonna read—I'm gonna read one of his music passages. It's really one of my favorites in the whole book. Here now, don't go touching those. Josen tried to sound casual. You'll turn it from true. But I didn't really hear him. The singer and all the rest couldn't have been farther away from me if they'd been at the bottom of the sea, I touched the last string and tuned it too, ever so slightly. I made a simple chord and strummed it. It rang soft and true. I moved a finger, and the chord went minor in a way that always sounded to me as if the lute were saying, sad. I moved my hand again, and the lute made two chords, whispering against each other. Then, without realizing what I was doing, I began to play. The strings felt strange against my fingers like reunited friends who have forgotten what they have in common. I played soft and slow sending notes no farther than the circle of our firelight. Fingers and strings made a careful conversation as if their dance described the lines of an infatuation. Then I felt something inside me break and the music began to pour out into the quiet my fingers danced, intricate and quick. They spun something gossamer and tremulous into the circle of light our fire had made. The music moved like a spider web, stirred by a gentle breath. It changed like a leaf, twisting as it falls to the ground, and it felt like three years waterside and tarbine with a hollowness inside you and hands that ached from the bitter cold. I don't know how long I played. It could have been ten minutes or an hour, but my hands weren't used to the strain. They slipped, and the music fell to pieces like a dream on waking. I looked up to see everyone perfectly motionless, their faces ranging from shock to amazement. Then as if my gaze had broken some spell, everyone stirred. Rowent shifted in his seat. The two mercenaries turned and raised eyebrows at each other. Derek looked at me as if he had never seen me before. Retta remained frozen, her hand held in front of her mouth. Dinah lowered her face into her hands and began to cry in quiet, hopeless sobs. Joseph simply stood. His face was stricken and bloodless if he had been stabbed. I love this So, scenes. Josh,
3: I'm going to need you to become an audiobook narrator. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, that was good, Josh.
1: That was good. That was good. When you read it, it sounds so much better when you read it out loud than when I read it in my head. I, I got to be honest. In fantasy books, which you guys are are bringing to my world, I find too many poems and music, and I'm like, I skip poems, and I like, oh god, poem. It's like what? It's like two pages?
0: <laughs> Confessions of a poem skipper.
1: Yeah, and I I skip songs, but I've been read. I read not in this because they're not singing the songs. When it has the lyrics to a song, I'm just like. I scan it for like, okay, is this like, are they using this as a baseball bat to hit me over with a theme I'm supposed to be thinking about? Uh, okay. It's about a girl. Okay. Got it. And I just kind of skip through them because I, I just find them boring, but that wasn't boring at all. When you read it, it sounded great. It sounded like, you know, I read this book years ago called Flow um, by this uh, Czechoslovakian uh, writer. It was amazing. And it, it got me thinking for months, like what, experiences gave me a sense of flow i think the author does a kick-ass job of describing it right there
0: yeah those are the, those are flow moments i think he might have some flow moments too when he's in front of like at his trials in front of the the professors like yeah he, he's, mm-hmm. it, it's mental flow it's like he it's a puzzle and he's figuring it out yeah deep you know
1: real quick real quick
0: are there any other poem
1: and song skippers on this pod me
0: gosh I- you, I was hoping you weren't you weren't gonna ask. I skim them.
3: Yeah, Let's me too. Him. Unless unless it's like a riddle, and then I'm just like, I need to figure this out before the character does.
2: <laughs> so what, so Lou, do you skim them or do you read them? I, you see, like... I read them to see if there's any anything hidden in them. Any Easter eggs? Yeah. So why why are fantasy writers doing this?
1: It's in World every. It's not, I don't think it's
2: all fantasy writers, but yeah.
1: Dude. The prevalence of poems and songs where you actually have to read the lyrics is incredibly high.
0: <laughs> uh, that's a fair point. That's a fair point.
1: And if the four know. of us who are into it are skimming, the casual reader, which obviously we are also casual readers, but like the super casual reader who's reading it only because their friends told them to, just note to fantasy writers. Take it easy on the on – the, uh, <laughs>
0: seems like the more epic the fantasy series, the more yes, poems boy. and songs. The more poems and songs, yes. Agreed. Tolkien, Tolkien has so many poems and songs.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how they communicated back then. But not Wheel of Time. No, not <laughs> Wheel of Time.
0: <laughs> it's Wheel of Time has its fair share.
3: Oh, oh yeah, I guess.
0: <laughs> All right. Let's take a break and have a word from our sponsor for episode nine. And when we return, we'll do Hollywood.
1: This episode is made possible by Cradle Tongue. Cradle
0: Tongue, the leader
1: in astrolinguistic and optic bioimplants. Kapindi hiki Kenukulete, Kualuja, Yauyoto. For those of you without Cradle Tongue, I just said, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. In Tharsis. Yeah, Tharsis an obscure dialect of the Martian language. You might be asking yourself when I sat down. You guys know I'm busy I work, I have kids, I spend time on this pod. When could I have learned an obscure Martian dialect? I think it would surprise you to find out it only took me eight minutes because I use cradle tongue. The Milky Way is a galaxy of vast contrasts crowded with hundreds of intelligent species using their own special and specific languages and dialects. The biggest challenge to intercosmic diplomacy, cultural exchange, and intergalactic trade is language barrier. Most of the solar systems within the Milky Way are inhabited. You know, the inner planets are anyway. And so are many of the asteroid belts and Kuiper belts. But the problem is these societies grew up in isolation and their language, customs, and so forth, they're all very, very different. And what ties these these societies together is the meaningful desire, the deep desire for communication. As Nelson Mandela put it, if you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his own language, that goes to his heart. Use cradle tongue to speak directly to an alien's heart, or hearts, plural, or heart equivalents, depending on the species. I think you understand. How do cradle tongues bio implants work to help you achieve astrolinguistic proficiency? It's easy. To speak any of the languages present in our current galaxy, a series of injections using hypodermic needles in the roof of your mouth, tongue, soft palate, hard palate, tonsils, and that punching bag looking thing in the back of your throat is all it takes. To understand any of the languages, Pre- present in our galaxy you just need to get a series of subcutaneous injections in your ear lobe eardrum auditory tubes and deep in our ear cradle tongue's patented bio serum alters you at the cellular level to speak and understand any language in the known universe so cool you get every language in the galaxy at one low price cradle tongue's one time entry level all-inclusive price is only 499 dollars Being able to speak Alpha Centaurianese for only $499, that's nothing. Cradle Tongue is practically paying you. But that's not all. Listeners to our pod get a special deal. If you use our code at checkout, you can also get Cradle Tongue's galaxy-leading astral optic bio-enhancement. Optic, meaning eyes. Not only will you speak and understand every word spoken in our galaxy, but thanks to their optic enhancements, You can also read and write in any intergalactic tongue. The importance of interstellar literacy can't be stressed enough. Cosmic literacy is critical to economic development as well as individual and community well-being. One of Cradle Tongue's certified ophthalmologists simply provides you with an intravitreal injection. That's an injection through the pupil of your eye, which uh, when I did it, it it was nerve-wracking, but it didn't hurt at all directly into your ocular nerve found right behind your eyeball. After this simple procedure, you will be able to read and write in all of the extraterrestrial languages. Intercosmic statesmanship, interplanetary cultural exchange, and extraterrestrial trade is within your grasp for only $499. Remember to use our code at checkout for Cradle Tongue's award-winning astral optical enhancement. For $499, you'll be able to understand and speak in any intergalactic language. But if you use our code at checkout, you'll also be able to write in it. So how do you do it? It's easy. Go to www.booksfromearth.com backslash cradle tongue. That's cradle tongue, all one word. Use our code at checkout. That's BFE. And they will throw in their award-winning astral optical enhancements for free. Zivatilik Medud Oman That's a quarry, folks. A quarry for interstellar literacy opens the door to unlimited knowledge. I didn't travel light years to the quarry system to learn this language. Nope. I just received a few injections in and around my ears, eyes, and pie hole. That's it. Cradle Tongue, the leader in astrolinguistic and optical bio implants. Check out Cradle Tongue on the web and
0: tell them books from Earth sent you. Now, back to the pot. Thank you, Cradle Tongue. Before we get into casting, I just want to know, what are we dealing with here? Is this Harry Potter? Is this Wheel of Time? Is this Count of Monte Cristo? Do do we have any bearings?
3: I think it's something entirely different. Yeah, I think, I think, I don't know. I I don't know that it's Harry, I, I don't know that it's any of those. I think it's its own animal.
2: So do I me too i mean there's some similarities with harry potter where you know the parents die they're both orphans but that's about it
3: mm-hmm. magic school
2: magic school but the magic completely different
3: mm-hmm. and josh you were saying of monte cristo with um the obsession for revenge
0: the intense serious first person narrator Reminds oh. me right out of *Count of Monte Cristo*, and and yeah, the *Count of Monte Cristo* is a book about revenge, and that's what that's what the count is after. Uh, and I don't know yet what Kvothe is after, but he he nevertheless has this same serious, no nonsense, driven tone in his narration and purpose in life. But hopefully we'll get to it. All right, casting. Kvothe. Now, there's is there a young is there a young Kvothe and an older one? There's the one at the inn, of course, but when I think of Kovoth for casting, I'm mainly focused on the younger one, and I don't know who to get for it. I, one idea was Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things as a, as a young Kovoth as a really young one, but I don't think it translates later when he's at the university. Mm. I, just, I just don't think he's – the physique is there. But
2: that's all I've got. Anybody have a good one? I have Tom Holland. As a young Kaboth. Aww. Aww. I don't know if you could pay him. I mean, he's like a huge actor now, you know. Yeah, and he'd
3: spoil everything.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You you wouldn't be able to
3: give him the script.
2: No, you you, you just got to watch him carefully.
3: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Tom Holland, that sounds good. Anybody else? I don't have Kaboth. Okay.
2: Just to let you guys know that you know they are thinking about. Well, I think it's in the works of making this into a TV show. Mm-hmm. I think and the TV show is going to be a prequel,
3: and the the series is going to come out as movies. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Yeah.
2: So this is this is in the it's in the works.
3: Mm-hmm. There will also be a video game. I am super stoked.
1: I'm, I'm sure. The, um, after this pod, the uh, creators will be checking with us to get our input. So.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, they've already signed Lin Manuel Miranda to do the music and produce it, so probably not looking for us.
2: <laughs> no, not looking for us. That's going to be good music.
3: Oh my god, it's gonna be awesome. amazing!
0: Amazing, excellent. All right, how about dinner? Anybody have someone for dinner?
1: So One I'm... of my ex girlfriends, who will remain nameless, was a lot like I think a lot like Jenna.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Oh, uh, nameless Uh-oh. ex. Very good. Okay. Um, <laughs> just straight up, you know, moth the flame. Like, oh, that bright light, psh, burn, die. You know.
3: <laughs> so like it's it's interesting when you when you Denna. we all have a dinner. Because, you know, Bast straight up says, I saw her, and she's not as pretty as you're describing her. And so, you know, what is it about that character that makes her so moth-to-the-flame-like when Bast was actually very critical of of how she looked? Who who you cast?
1: So I I actually have a story about this that involves Josh. When I was – Okay. Josh and I have known each other since I was 17. He was 16. When I was 18, I dated this girl named Diane, who was from West Virginia. I don't know why that's important, but I (laughs) – when I saw her, the first time I saw her, at the time, she looked like to me like Kelly LeBrock with blonde hair. Like this is back in the day, right? Weird science. And I was like, whoa, staggered, could barely speak in her presence. She was so hot. I worked at I worked it, and eventually we started dating. I, I just couldn't believe that I was dating her, and I was talking about it all the time and probably being very unbearable. And <laughs> I asked Josh what he thought, like, can you believe it? She's so hot. I can't believe it. And he said, I don't know. She seems a little trashy to me. And...
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> i oh, We're, we're sorry,
3: Diane. We don't think that about you. And,
1: oh, she doesn't think about me. Trust me. But turned out Josh's assessment turned out to be pretty accurate. But I didn't know that, and wasn't to find that out for nine months. So Bast seeing something in Denna that, you know, when you're – it's like you put on stupid glasses and become stupid when you are infatuated or in love or whatever, mm. and you just don't know what's there. You know, you're just
3: projecting
1: yeah. all this stuff yeah. that you want to see
3: or at the same time if this is like a real love story and and we're looking at the we're looking at a different side that we have not seen yet you know you overlook things that maybe aren't necessarily as attractive about a person because you are so attracted to what's inside them i personally fall for charisma a lot faster than i fall for a pretty face gotcha mhm
1: i guess it knocks me out that's harsh because i'm mostly just looks
0: but <laughs> 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 okay man. <laughs> it's all right.
3: Yeah. Oh dear, there will be other women Jack, it'll be okay. <laughs>
1: yeah. Josh, I've got I've got casting casting for Ambrose. Yes. Wayne's World. We mentioned it before the pod. The bad guy in Wayne's World. Does anyone remember who it was?
3: Rob Lowe?
1: Yes, it would be oh. a young a young Rob Lowe.
2: <laughs> wow. Oh.
1: Yeah. when And the, the line to describe Ambrose was a line that Garth used, which was, hey, don't worry about him. If he were an ice cream, he would be pralines and dick. <laughs> and I, I, think, I think Ambrose is pralines and dick and I, would be well served by a young Roblo.
3: Here. Uh, yeah
0: <laughs> Sounds about right though. Sounds about right. All right. Any more casting?
3: I was thinking I honestly I went really deep into the who's a red headed actor, red Rabbit hole, and it turns out that both Tom Hiddleston. That well, I was thinking Tom Hiddleston because he's actually a natural redhead, and he does have that kind of scampy personality. But I think that he could also do like the the tragic backstory, you know. I so I was thinking Tom Hiddleston for both, but I'm not married to it.
1: No, he's done an in innkeeper too.
3: Oh really? What did he? What was he in?
1: I think he was called. Might have been called the innkeeper. It was a. Uh-huh. La, a short series, the, and the bad guy was the dude from House.
3: Oh, interesting. I like it. Yeah,
1: and he was a sad character with the darkness.
3: Aw, yes, yes.
0: Was that a hit TV series that I missed? It wasn't a big hit, but it was one I liked. Movie or TV show? What do we like?
3: I could do any. Honestly, I yeah. would eat it up if it was a TV show. I'm kind of hoping that they that – they do something different with the movie deal and save this for the TV show because it is just so rich like the night
1: the night manager he was the night manager
2: oh I love that show <laughs> I watched I watched like a couple okay. episodes
0: there we go <laughs> all right so I could do either I, I, I'd like to see it stretched out as a TV show as well Reading. I would say t- TV show, but I could see
1: this not being a very good show. Too much okay. alone time. Too much alone time. How are you going to mm-hmm. deal with that? It's a tough mm-hmm. one.
3: Uh-huh. That's a good call. Well, it's, yeah, well it'd be like, I, maybe it'd it's be a, had, like limited, Bear grills in the wild.
1: I love Bear Grylls. But I know I shouldn't, <laughs> but I do. Um, I, I, I would say limited series, like six episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, no, and not and don't do young clean cut people, right? Do yeah. grizzled, beat up people. Gritty. Yeah, gritty, gritty. I think Game of Thrones did a good job with gritty, and you'd want to, you'd want to
0: go gritty. Okay, gritty. How about rating. R. R. Really?
3: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. For what?
1: Uh, there's a boy that gets raped in that town, Arbyne. And he does nothing to stop it. Mm-hmm. He stays up on that on the. Uh, okay, his, I forgot
0: that uh, scene. The roof. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. R. <laughs> yeah, but is that it? Is that is that because I mean, you could cut that that's scene? Pretty I mean, I'd say no, that's pretty bad. No, no, but you could cut bad. that scene and get it down to
1: PG thirteen or something. Because well, I would want it. I'd want it R. You know, Saving Private Ryan in the beginning when it's like yeah, they're like filming like and there's like people breathing and noises and like when the bombs go off, the ringing in your ears, that's how I want this one.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And if we're going to, if we're going to talk about like both coming back to find his family decimated, it's going to be like a 10 year old child, you know, seeing that and to really get an impact on that. I think that you would need to make it rated R Yeah, because you, you don't, you don't want your, your kids seeing that. That's not, that didn't sound like too much fun. I would not take oh. my niece to see that.
1: A farmhouse full of
0: corpses. Yeah. Uh, anybody else have a favorite passage?
3: I do, if I may.
0: Yes, please.
3: Um, so, and again, it's more music. You know, I think we were really drawn to the music in this book. And this is right – After This is when Kvothe goes off into the woods to recover from um, the tragedy that has happened to his family. In the beginning, I was almost like an automaton, thoughtlessly performing the actions that would keep me alive. I ate the second rabbit I caught and the third. I found a patch of wild strawberries. I dug for roots. By the end of the fourth day, I had everything I needed to survive. A stone-lined pit, a shelter for my loot. I even had assembled a small stockpile of foodstuffs that I could fall back on in case of emergency. I also had one thing I did not need. Time. After I had taken care of immediate needs, I found I had nothing to do. I think this is when a small part of my mind started to slowly reawaken itself. Make no mistake, I was not myself. At least I was not the same person I had been a span of days before. Everything I did I attended to with my whole mind, leaving no part of me free for remembering. I grew thinner and more ragged. I slept in rain or sun on soft grass, moist earth, or sharp stones, with an intensity of indifference that only grief can promote. The only notice I took of my surroundings was when it rained, because then I could not bring out my lute to play, and that pained me. Of course I played. It was my only solace. By the end of the first month, my fingers had calluses, hard as stones, and I could play for hours upon hours. I played and played again all of the songs I knew from memory. Then I played the half-remembered songs as well, filling in the forgotten parts as best I could. Eventually i could play from when i woke until the time i slept i stopped playing the songs i knew and started inventing new ones i had made up songs before i had even helped my father compose a verse or two but now i gave it my whole attention some of those songs have stayed with me to this day soon after that i began playing how can i describe it i began to play something other than songs When the sun warms, the grass and the breeze cools you. It feels a certain way. I would play until I got the feeling right. I would play until it sounded like warm grass and cool breeze. I was only playing for myself, but I was a harsh audience. I remember spending nearly three whole days trying to capture wind turning the leaf. By the end of the second month, I could play things nearly as easily as I saw and felt them. Sun setting behind the clouds, bird taking a drink, Dew in the Bracken. Somewhere in the third month, I stopped looking outside and started looking inside for things to play. I learned to play riding in the wagon with Ben, singing with Father by the fire, watching Shandy dance, grinding leaves when it is nice outside, Mother smiling. Needless to say, playing these things hurt, but it hurt like a tender fingers on lute strings. I bled a bit and hoped that I would callous soon.
0: The lute is such a Beautiful instrument for him. Mm-hmm.
1: Again, I feel very lame for not liking music
0: stuff that much. Good <laughs> job. Mm. Good, good reading. <laughs> All right, folks, let's wrap it up. Lou, what makes this book special?
2: Like I said before, and Jack said it, you know, it's the story of, you know, the coming of age and trying to discover who he really is. You know, I think that's what makes this interesting. There's so many questions that are left open still, and I have to answer them. You know what I mean,
0: Jack? So, what makes this book special? The threads that are left hanging
1: that you have to find out about, just like Lou said, Maureen.
3: Everything. I <laughs> I love this book. Um, you know the writing, the the way that he captures those still soft moments in time. And the way it transports me into not just a different place, but to almost to being a different person.
0: This book was special to me because of this sort of intensity and efficiency of the narration. Mm-hmm. Just how he kept moving us along in large steps, giving us key details when they were touching and mattered, and giving us the sort of big events happening. And he's driving these all these various different themes. Um, and challenges that he's trying to overcome at the same time, the financial troubles, the attempt to this romance that's it doesn't even say right to say it's budding. It's, it's like passionate and yet it's not physical. The rivalry, the desire to get into the archives, all of this just being pushed along on multiple tracks at all times made it special for me. Episode 9 featuring The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss has come to an end. We'd like to thank Cradle Tongue, whose generous funding made this episode possible. Cradle Tongue, the leader of astrolinguistics and optic bioimplants. You can find more information about Cradle Tongue at booksfromearth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, rate us, or visit our website, booksfromearth.com. Earth makes great books. Come relive them with us. So long. Until next time. All you luteists. This is Josh Marie elu signing off.
2: Bye. Good night. Bye.